0: And hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur.
1: This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. We're so glad to have you here today. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day to expand your mind. And I really do hope that you're ready to be challenged, to be given evidence and that you will allow yourself to expand your thinking, that you are open to discussions, to discourse about things, and that you will uh, take the information in and then just not out of hand throw it away. I love um You know, some of you may know Joel Joel Osteen, know of him. Maybe you know him personally. I don't know. Um, His father, John Osteen, has a great saying. His saying is, you need to be wise as an old cow. You need to eat the grass and spit out the sticks. And I think that often what we find in life is that when something comes that, um, you know, we've never thought of before, all the way to it absolutely flies in the face of our beliefs, we tend to automatically dismiss it rather than taking the information, learning what we can, and really truly be able to take in data and make decisions. Sometimes the best thing that you can have in life is something that comes up that challenges you to the point where you have to change your mind. There are some things that I believe you need to have immutable. You need to have a belief that you stand firmly in and on. But I think inside of even the immutable things, there's room for discussion, for discourse, for you to gain a deeper and further understanding about that thing those beliefs that you hold so dear um, to sometimes modify them and sometimes strengthen and encourage them because you haven't just, uh, you know, done an ostrich, stuck your head in the sand, but rather you've taken the information in. You have really legitimately and genuinely processed the information and then allowed it to, in some way or another, shape who you are to advance what you're thinking. A perfect way of looking at this um, is in science. Um, I love it. I was watching a show the other day. Um, I I watch a lot of TV, I guess. I don't know. I I at least refer to it a lot. Um, I was watching a show the other day, and they were talking about um, the things that scientists knew were absolutely true. And then the changes that happened, Um, and I learned some new information on it, and that's really why I bring it up. Um, Back in the day, um, Aristotle, the pretty much uh, founder of uh, of science, um, his his way of thinking scientifically was um, was literally to think. They believed that if you thought about a problem in a situation long enough, that you could mentally come up with the answer. That you could develop a solution just by sitting around and having very, very deep thought. Um, and so there were some things that came out of that. Um, you know, things like the world being flat. Um, like the Earth being the center of our galaxy and even the center of the universe. Um, And there are different things like that. And then uh, there have been many things throughout the course of history that have challenged that. The primary one that we would think of next would be Newton, who, you know, proved gravity, who proved that if you drop two items from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, that gravity will impact both of them exactly the same. That other outside forces, like for example wind, which will take a feather and blow it around, um, may impact how they fall, but the gravity itself is a constant. And that was a whole brand new thinking. And and he really was kind of the father of experimentation. Let's try this out. Let's, let's not just have this thought, but let's actually take and create an experiment and test it. Um, and then, of course, you go deeper from that and you go to Einstein and the theory of relativity and, and things like that. And um, in this particular show I was watching, they were actually even talking about the fact that... Um, you know, there are now scientific things that are coming out that are proving that Einstein was probably not the end of the discussion, that there's probably still more to learn. And so by now, you're probably asking yourself, um, isn't the name of the show Thriving Entrepreneur? What does all of this sciencey stuff have to do with living as a thriving entrepreneur? I'm so glad you asked. You see, here's the thing. We, as people, need to continually be growing. There's an old saying. I don't even remember the first person I heard it from. I can think of a couple of people I've heard it from a lot. But um, the saying is, green is growing, ripe is rotten. When a fruit ripens, it is actually at the first stage of rotting. That's why, um, you know, certain fruits that have to be shipped distances will actually be picked when they're still green. And then they get to, you know, like, for example, bananas, you know, they get to that yellow color that we're looking for on their way, or even sometimes while they're sitting on the shelf at the uh, at the grocery store. Um, and, you know, I've even seen people who will buy the, the green ones or the ones that are still a little bit green because, um, you know, because they know that quickly after... The yellow becomes the brown spots, and they keep getting browner and browner until you know all you can do is throw the uh, throw the bananas away, and that's the same thing that we need in our life. We need to take in new information. We need to be continually growing, learning, developing, evolving as who we are as a person in order to be able to be the best version of ourselves, to grow as a thriving entrepreneur. It's imperative that you open yourself up to information, information that is brought to you by people who you absolutely agree with, and also information that's brought to you by people who you completely disagree with. And by doing that, we develop more than anything else. We develop our ability to think Think, And as an entrepreneur, your ability to take in information, to think about it, and then to make solid and clear decisions is perhaps one of the most paramount things that will lead you to your success. You're going to get advice from people, um, you know, and some of the advice you're going to get from them is good. What you'll find the longer you're in business is, is is that the best coach you're ever gonna have is going to tell you some things that aren't gonna work for you and for your business. It doesn't make them a bad person. It's not because they're doing something malicious to you. It's just simply because, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, it didn't work for your particular business doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater and you never take advice from anybody else ever again because in that one incident way back in July, that person gave me bad advice and so therefore I can never get advice from anybody else. That is not the way you want to be. That's the opposite of thriving. What you want to do is realize more and more how to be able to take in information, to process it and to allow it to impact you. Sometimes the impact that that information has is it solidifies your personal beliefs. Sometimes that information expands your way of thinking and makes it so that you feel, think, look, act differently than what you used to. And both of those are good. Both of those are the ultimate version of growing, of staying green, of learning, of developing your mind. Your mind is a muscle, and when we're using it, it continues to be active. Um, you know, a lot of people that work with elderly people, one of the big things that they will do is have them do Sudoku or you know, Sudoku or whatever it's pronounced. Or different, or you know, crossword puzzles or those kind of things. Things to keep their mind active. Because when we just sit and we don't contemplate, we don't do anything with our minds, we're actually atrophying the most important muscle in us, and that's our brain. And we don't want that. We want to live as thriving entrepreneurs, we want information. We want to learn, to develop, and to grow as people. As we take in information, as we grow, as we develop our ability to think, we become a better version of ourselves. And I really encourage you throughout the course of this amazing interview that I'm bringing to you, that you will listen to the information. There is some mind-blowing, amazing stuff that I'm getting ready to present to you with today's best-selling author. And I really hope that you're ready for it, because I know having just gone through the interview just before I put together this part and put it all together, I know that if your ears are open if your heart is available and if your mind is ready to think that you are going to find some things in this interview that are probably going to both challenge you as well as inspire you and that's more than anything what I could do for you today Is to help inspire you to think, to expand, to grow, and to become the best version of yourself as we're all together on this exciting, amazing journey, walking our way through life and living each and every day as a thriving entrepreneur. Don't go away. We'll be right back. youthrive.com. Check us out and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back
0: to Thriving Entrepreneur.
1: This is Steve. Welcome back. I am so excited to bring this book to you. It's a lot of fun. Uh, The guest and I had a wonderful time together talking there's times when we get really deep and scientific times when we're very spiritual mystical and and ethereal in the things we're saying and i am so excited to be able to present my guest to you so that you can expand your consciousness that you can really find yourself thriving while you listen to this great information from our special guest today Join me in welcoming my special guest, Mark Gober. Hi, Mark. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Did I pronounce your name right, Mark? You got it right. Oh, good.
1: (laughs) I was sitting here thinking, I was like, you know, I should ask first, but you know what the heck. (laughs) So your book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking. Um, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. Um, so I'm going to need a few definitions here to get started off so people know what you're talking about. What, um, what would you define as upside down thinking?
2: So the, the mainstream view in most of science and Western thinking is that the universe goes in the following way. billion years ago, there was some event that started the universe called a Big Bang. It filled the universe with physical stuff that we call matter, like atoms, things that you can touch. When you have a big enough universe with enough atoms interacting, we call that chemistry when atoms are interacting, you're bound through chance to end up with with a molecule that is self-replicating like DNA. Chance just says that's bound to happen. So DNA leads to the evolution of living organisms like a human being, which develops a brain, and from the brain, consciousness comes out. And when I say consciousness, I mean awareness or the mind. So right now I'm talking to you, the sense of identity I have, that subjective inner experience, that's my consciousness. So this perspective that I just described, it's called materialism because it starts with physical material and ends with consciousness. Matter through a brain creates consciousness. That is the conventional thinking that I am challenging in my book, in End to Upside Down Thinking, and I'm saying that that perspective of matter creates consciousness is incorrect.
1: All right, so then what does create consciousness?
2: So that I argue in the book that there are a number of scientific phenomena, including quantum physics, but some other things too, that point in the direction, suggesting that consciousness is actually what comes first, And the physical world, matter, biology, chemistry, all of those things are experiences within consciousness. And consciousness is beyond space and time. So we kind of worked to the final answer. And my book is all the evidence leading to that point. So this is the upside down thinking. The conventional thinking is matter leads to consciousness. And what I'm arguing is, no, consciousness is first, beyond space and time.
1: I love the lead-in you did here, and I apologize, but I just saw this, uh, uh, just recently, I saw a documentary that was done just before Stephen Hawking's passed, and he was talking the absolute opposite of what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, In fact, his end conclusion is um, that there can possibly be no God because... Um, before the big, big bang, there was no time, therefore there couldn't have been a God. And um, honestly, he kind of lost me in, in his thought process. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But I know that it it like screams in the face of what you're saying. So um, what would you say to Stephen Hawking, who says that there was literally nothing before the bang that then started, t- uh, you know, time?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, Stephen Hawking, along with many other what I'll call mainstream physicists, do not typically uh, think about consciousness or think about incorporating consciousness in their framework of the universe. The conventional perspective is that consciousness just somehow comes out of the brain and has no effect on the physical world. And therefore, it's just something for philosophers and psychologists to deal with. So Stephen Hawking even says, and I I quote this in my book, he says, I get uneasy when people, especially theoretical physicists, talk about consciousness. And Neil deGrasse Tyson has said, he wonders if there's no such thing as consciousness at all. That is is pretty is counter to what I'm arguing, which is that consciousness is the basis of reality. Um, so uh, what I would have said to Stephen Hawking had, he if he were still alive, would be to look at the, the phenomena of consciousness that I describe in my book, which are uh, generally into two categories. One is the evidence for psychic phenomena, meaning that consciousness can be non-local to the body, and the other is survival of bodily death, where consciousness seems to persist when the body is no longer functional. Both of these types of phenomena suggest that consciousness is not localized to the body and not dependent on the body, and therefore it suggests that there is this kind of uh, underlying consciousness that is not dependent on the physical.
1: And we really just jumped headlong into this. Yes. So for the listeners benefit, give us, let's back up just a half a step here and give us an idea of your background. Where are you coming from? You know, how did you get to this place?
2: That's a great question. So my background on the surface has nothing to do with any of this. I'm a partner at a strategy consulting firm called Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley. Prior to that, I was an investment banking analyst with UBS in New York During the financial crisis and prior to that I was at Princeton University where I was captain of the tennis team Uh, But it was about two years ago that I became familiarized with these sorts of topics for the first time I was very much in the materialist camp thinking that the brain produces consciousness There's something going on in my brain. We don't understand it And that's why I'm conscious and therefore when my body dies when my brain dies my consciousness dies and therefore, I reasoned that life has no meaning, which is very common in the in the physics community to think that it's a meaningless universe because of this paradigm that we're conscious because of our brain. When I learned of phenomena about two years ago, science suggesting that some of these other things are real, that psychic abilities, that survival of bodily death, that there, there's actual evidence for this, which we can talk about. And it comes from places like Princeton University, the University of Virginia, the Division of Perceptual Studies there, their med school, the U.S. government, very compelling stuff that totally flipped my worldview after I researched for about a year straight. And that led to my writing of the book in a few weekends, actually, in July, 2017, I just felt so compelled to do it that I, I compressed it into a few weeks while still working my job. And here we are. And the book comes out. It, it is out as of October 9th.
1: So was there an event that happened in your life that, I mean, cause you're talking about a complete 180? <laughs> you know, you're not talking about like, you know, you took a little step sideways here, you're talking about really changing your mind. Was there an event that that catalyzed that?
2: I'm often asked that question. And for many people who have a shift, like the one I had, there was a catalyst, like it was a near death experience, or they just had a mystical experience they can't explain. For me, it wasn't like that. It was a gradual process of seeing evidence that I had no idea existed and researching more and more, getting to the point where there was so much evidence on one side that I couldn't reconcile with my old worldview. And it forced me to reconsider things because my old worldview, which I think, as I said, is the conventional perspective in science materialism. That worldview was informed by what I thought was the set of scientific evidence. And that set for me excluded this whole body that I just wrote the book on.
1: So, uh, you know, it makes me think of, and I'm sure you've probably seen it, the movie and the book uh, Contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it. And I love the process that happens through the course of that movie because, you know, early on, um, you know, the the reverend is, uh, you know, telling her he had an experience that was beyond something that his mind could handle. And she, of course, had no way as a scientist to be able to categorize that you know and then by the end of it she has an experience of her own and she says you know hey from this I know what I experienced Um, and so I, I guess I gotta wonder how much of people's entrenchment if you will in their view has to do with their experiences or their lack
2: thereof that's a really really good point and it's something i talk about in an into upside down thinking we're very biased by our ordinary perceptions we're biased what our by what our eyes can see and what our ears can hear but we know for example that our vision is limited to a very very small percentage of the total spectrum of of light for example. Um, So I think that does play a part. People are biased by what they are personally experiencing. And if they haven't experienced something themselves, it's hard to imagine that it could exist. Um, What you just described in the the context of the movie Contact is she had an experience that some would call ineffable, meaning language can't really do justice to what was experienced. And this is something that happens with psychedelics users. And that's something I do talk about in the book. And also people who have near-death experiences, so these are instances, and, and by the way, if you had told me about a near-death experience or asked me about it a few years ago, I would have said, well, isn't that just something that happens to the brain when it's about to die? Isn't there just a hallucination that happens? That was before I got into the research, which shows that these are happening under extreme physiological distress, sometimes under cardiac arrest when the brain is off and the pe- and people are having Uh, non-hallucinatory experiences where the things that they're seeing are actually verified as being accurate. And these are studies done by cardiologists such as Dr. Pim Van Lommel and a bunch of others. So what people come back reporting is, well, I had this experience where I was immersed with this light and unconditional love, but they can't really explain it with words. And so I think you hit on a really important issue, which is that certain people have experiences. Not all of us have have it all the time, or maybe we only have it at later point in life. And it's hard to relate to something that we haven't experienced ourselves.
1: And that's very true. And I think it's really uh, unwise, I'm trying to be kind here, (laughs) um, of people to dismiss something because they haven't experienced it, or because they don't have a set of data that they're basing their decision on.
2: Yeah, and I think, but throughout history, we've seen this happened over and over again. Um, So there's an example that I reference in the book, Antoine Lavoisier, who was basically the founder of chemistry, and this was in the 1700s. There were, were reports that stones were falling from the sky and they reasoned, the scientific council, including Lavoisier, they reasoned, well, this is not possible because there are no rocks in the sky. There couldn't be rocks falling. Very soon after, those rocks were discovered to be meteorites. And they changed their statement. So we see this over and over again where things seem totally ridiculous. Another example is germ theory. The notion that a bacteria could harm someone or even kill a person made no sense at all. But then with the advent of the microscope, we could actually see these little things. And they can have have a big impact even though they're very small.
1: Well, and in fact, we could, uh, you know, probably fill up several hours of shows just talking about the, well, we thought it was that way. But, you know, then we found something else.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you another example that I think is probably the closest parallel to what I think is the next big paradigm shift around consciousness. Around 1900, Lord Kelvin, who was one of the major authorities in science, he said that they had most of physics figured out except for two clouds. And those clouds were later figured out and one is quantum mechanics, and the other is relativity theory. These are two of the most revolutionary theories in all of science, and they were little anomalies, little clouds that, couldn't, that they couldn't figure out at the time. We have very similar things happening right now with psychic phenomena, where we see statistical effects that are sometimes really small, but they're easy to sweep under the rug, and we have these examples of people with near-death experiences, but not everyone's having them, so it's easy to brush them away. I think we're at the next Big revolution where these anomalies are going to have to be incorporated into our framework of reality, and it will totally shift how we think about things. So let's
1: talk about uh, especially those two things because you've you've stated them several times: psychic phenomena and near-death experience. Um, You know, is there a difference between what immediately pops to somebody's mind when you start talking about psychic phenomena? And what you're talking about, or are you really talking about, you know, the fortune teller at the carnival or something?
2: Well, I use the word psychic as a broad term. Some people use the term psi, P-S-I, but I like to use psychic because it's kind of a, it has a, a connotation that people generally understand what I'm talking about. But there are different categories and each is its own chapter in and end to upside down thinking. One is called remote viewing also known as clairvoyance, which is the ability to perceive something with the mind alone. And when I talked about the U.S. government earlier, the U.S. government was using psychic spies. They have declassified documents, actually, in the last few years that talk about this process of remote viewing, seeing from a distance. And in my book, I actually was able to include some of those declassified documents that say, and this is a direct quote, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. So that's remote viewing. There's another, telepathy, which is mind-to-mind communication precognition, which is knowing the future before it happens, psychokinesis, which is the ability for the mind to have an effect on physical matter. And I go through the scientific evidence for each of those phenomena.
1: And so, of course, I'm sure you run into people who you give them all the evidence, and then they immediately tell you that it's totally wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I think there is some of that. and And I wrote the book with that in mind. So I think when looking at government documents, for example. I think it's pretty compelling when you see these declassified documents and say it's real. They showed the science panel that looked at it, and they said implications are revolutionary, and the evidence is too impressive to dismiss as coincidence. On top of that, this is still regarding the U.S. program. In 1995, Congress and the CIA asked a woman named Dr. Jessica Utz, who's was the 2016 President of the American Statistics Association. She's a statistician, a professor of statistics. She was asked to look at the data for these types of phenomena. And she concludes in her report, again, which is publicly available, she says, using the standards applied to any other area of science, psychic functioning has been well-established. So when you see enough of things like this, and then actually look at some of the studies and see the statistical results, at least in my own experience, it became, for me to reject things just because they seemed abnormal or paranormal, that was almost like a dogmatic perspective. So I had to really open myself up to say, wait, this is evidence. It challenges my current beliefs, but it's still evidence. And I need, if I really want to be scientific, I have to accept it and try to understand how it might be real.
1: So what does that then do to other evidentiary things that um, are often questioned, whether that be, um, you know, different religious foundations or other scientific issues that, um, you know, may not necessarily be 100% agreed upon. How do you now stand in uh, your belief system, I guess, is what I'm really saying. Yeah.
2: Well, for me, it's, it's, always been about um, believing something because the evidence points in a certain direction rather than a blind faith belief. That's just how I've done things. And based on the old evidence base I had, which was not what I talked about in my book, I-, I concluded that it was a materialist universe that doesn't have meaning. Now there is so much evidence to me, so much to the point where I felt comfortable putting it all in a book and putting my name on it that is suggestive of something very different, which... Actually, points in the direction of what many religious traditions have said, even though I've never really considered myself to be a religious person. I have noticed that there are parallels between this consciousness centric universe and what the mystical traditions have said in basically every tradition, even in the Western traditions like Gnosticism and Christianity, Kabbalah and Judaism, Sufism and Islam, and many of the Eastern traditions. They all talk about this consciousness centric idea, which is Now what our science and even quantum physics seems to be pointing in the direction of.
1: I wonder at this point, where are you? What thoughts have you had? I encourage you go out, use hashtag thriving entrepreneur and make your comments. I encourage you to take some time, think about what you're going to say and then make intelligent comments about what you've heard so far. I know that I know from the conversation I had with Mark that he's not looking for people to just out of hand agree with him, but rather to spark discussion and discourse so that all of us can get together and we can thrive as we approach life and we all work to become thriving entrepreneurs. youthrive.com. Check us out and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. I want to jump right back into my discussion with Mark Gober, his book, An End to Upside-Down Thinking. You know, there's a great book written by Josh McDowell that talks about evidence that demands a verdict. In fact, he did two books um, on that. And, And I love how he does the same thing, where he just takes factual data and says, you know, it's hard for you to just out of hand dismiss God, a higher power, whatever you want to call it, when there's so much evidence. And I hear you saying that same kind of thing when it comes to the information that's contained in your book.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what has happened, where if I, again, if I wanna be a scientific person, which is how I like to think about things, then when I see so much evidence, and I hadn't mentioned earlier, six sigma statistical results, and this is something that Dr. Dean Radin from the Institute of Noetic Sciences just talked about in his recent book, Real Magic. He's someone who studied psychic phenomena for about 40 years, including work at Princeton and the US government, And he shows categories of phenomena that have six sigma statistical results, meaning that the odds that these things are just chance random occurrences is more than a billion to one. And it's multiple categories. And we're talking about dozens of studies and decades of research. So if I really want to be scientific, how can I just say those are all false without having some basis for uh, showing how the studies have been done improperly or that there's fraud? And I haven't seen evidence for that.
1: Mm. I agree with you completely. Um, you know, so I think it brings us to the second part you've been talking about. We went into the psychic end of things. Now let's talk a little bit about near-death experiences. Yep. Um, first of all, just for somebody who this is totally left field to them, uh, again, give them a definition of what um, is considered a near-death experience.
2: Yep. So. Uh, a step back i would consider near-death experiences to be within a broader category of survival of bodily death meaning that when the body dies consciousness doesn't die one example of that is the near-death experience which is often reported in people who have a highly impaired brain or their brain is actually off like they're clinically dead and they're reporting a very lucid experience um so the reason this is being talked about much more in the last few decades is that resuscitation technology has gotten much stronger. So way back in the times of the, like Plato talks about this, the Egyptian book of the dead, the Tibetan book of the dead, they all reported this phenomenon of a near-death experience, but it was much more here and there. In the last few decades, we're, we're seeing many more reports because people are being brought back from the dead. The big debate is, are people having these experiences? And I should describe what the experiences are there are steps that are commonly reported. A person describes hovering over his or her body, like it's an out of body experience. They talk about this ineffability where they can't even explain with words what's happening and they feel unconditional love. Sometimes they see deceased relatives or they see a mystical being. And then, and to me this is the most significant thing, they talk about a life review where they experience their whole life in a flash and they're judging themselves for how they acted. In some cases, they experience the life review through the perspective through the eyes of those they affected. So let's say Bob is having his near death experience. He got in a car accident he's hovering over his body. He has this feeling of unconditional love. He then has his life review in his life earlier. He harmed Jane during the life review. He might experience Jane's pain through her eyes. And then the person comes back typically with a different value system completely. They come back saying, well, I don't care about material things anymore. What life is about is about how we treat each other. And many people often get divorced and they change their jobs and things change very dramatically. So that's the near death experience in a nutshell. The question is what causes that? Is that some kind of brain function that's causing this illusion or hallucination of an experience or is consciousness somehow existing when the body is not functional and what these people are experiencing is some broader reality that we typically don't see with our eyes.
1: Well, and the interesting thing, um, you know, the more accounts of people's near-death experiences that they've been through, the more you read, the more you see that there are two different types. There are people who, you know, it's all peace and love and joy. And there are other people who describe something very terrifying. You know, it's not something you'd want to (laughs) have is basically the easy way of putting it.
2: That's a great Uh, point. There are, um, I would say it's the minority of cases reported are, are fear inducing. So they're not the unconditional, the feeling of unconditional love. People come back totally freaked out and scared, but it's not, and I've talked to many of the scientists, including Dr. Bruce Grayson at the university of Virginia, who's been studying this for years. Uh, it's, it's not the majority of the cases, but we need to be able to explain them.
1: So have you put any, um, any explanation on why some have some and some have the other type of experience?
2: It's all really theoretical at this point. It's not well understood. Uh, it, it might be the case that that some that each of us is kind of having our own unique conscious experience and the, the state experienced in the near-death experience is also kind of our own unique uh, perception of reality. So maybe it has something to do with that individual's way of perceiving things and it just translates into the near-death experience. Why that's the case is it's just really not known.
1: One thing is definitely for sure, and that's that um, openness is probably needed way more rather than absolutes that people adhere to, um, especially when it starts coming to, and you use the word mystical, you know, even you might go so far as to say religious type of beliefs um, to absolutely dismiss them. Um, you know, it seems like you're talking about something that would make that very difficult to do.
2: And that's exactly what people describe who've had a near-death experience or a so-called mystical experience. They can't deny their own experience. And it's, it's difficult to look at the world in the same way when it happened to them, even if other people haven't had that experience. And it's so transformative for certain people that they they kind of sometimes say, "Well, I don't, I don't care if other people don't understand it. I had this experience, and I know this is the reality because I experienced it."
1: So, um, you know, we've we've been a little bit brainy here. Sorry, that's kind of who I am. So, I apologize if I led the conversation that way. <laughs> um, but let's talk about purpose. Um, what was your What was your reason for wanting to put this information out into the world?
2: I mentioned that it was, I had a a major worldview shift starting around two years ago. And when I first became exposed to this information, I was afraid to talk to people about it because in my business kind of world, the people that I, I've, grown up with and, and spend time with, they're not typically talking about things like this. And at first it sounded so outlandish and I didn't really have the data to be able to back the things that I was hearing about. But over time, as I started to get a picture of what was going on and that, that the issue centered around how we think about the brain, that the brain might not be a producer of consciousness, but it might be like an antenna receiver or a filtering mechanism of consciousness. So it's related to consciousness, but not producing it. Once I had more explanations, I told people about it uh, selectively at first. And the reactions actually were very positive. And many people told me that over time, their lives started to shift in a very positive direction as a result of our conversations. So after hearing enough reports of this where people would have a dinner with me and they would say, Mark, since that dinner, everything has shifted for me, I can't stop thinking about these other possibilities and my life has improved. After hearing enough of that, that's what led me to say, well, why don't I just try to write something? Because prior to that, I had no intention of writing anything or of being public in any way. But I realize that the impact could be very significant on the smallest scale for certain individuals. But also when we think about the world today, there are many problems that I don't need to go through. I mean, we all can turn on the news and see how many issues there are. To me, that, those issues, many if not all of them, stem from a misunderstanding of reality and a belief that we're actually fundamentally finite and like that we die and that's it. And also that we're not connected, that we're separate. What the research to me suggests, including quantum physics, is that we're actually connected at a very core level, even though there's an appearance of separation. So that has major implications for how we treat one another, both on an individual level, but also between nations. So I thought this was world-changing stuff that had to be written. So I wrote a book that I hope is, is simplified so that a general audience, someone who's not necessarily a scientist, can understand the principles.
1: And if a person... Only walked away from the book with one thing. And I know it's not a fair question because there's a ton of really great stuff in the book, but if they only walked away with one thing, what one thing would you really like to see them walk away with after finishing the book?
2: That's something I've thought about a lot. And to me, the one thing would be to acknowledge the fact that we do not know where consciousness comes from. Even if you don't, if you still think it comes from the brain, it is the number two question according to Science Magazine. As they put it, what is the biological basis of consciousness? We have no idea how physical biology, like I can touch my arm, I can touch my leg, I can touch my head, but I cannot touch my mind. How is it that a non-physical mind that I can't deny exists, because I'm aware right now, how does that emerge from something physical? I can touch my body, I just proved it. We don't know the answer to that. So if there's anything people come away with is we do not know how our own mind is produced. And therefore, it's at least possible that Consciousness and the mind is not a product of the brain at all. That's one potential explanation.
1: So I know, um, you know, there are several different, uh, I'll use your word, mystic beliefs that would talk about people being more than just body. Typically they break it into, um, you know, body, mind, and spirit meaning that you can think you do live in a body, but that you're more than that. Um, Do you find yourself, you know, feeling, believing in that area, or do you have a different uh, take on it?
2: I tend personally to stay away from words like spirit or spiritual or soul, just because they have so many connotations and people have different definitions. But what I will say is that my, my view of who I am, my identity has shifted from the materialist perspective, which says, I am a body that has a consciousness. Consciousness comes from this physical to thinking the reverse, which is that I, my identity, first and foremost is a consciousness, something non-physical that's experiencing a physical world through a body.
1: It would be really fun to put you in a room of about ten other people I know that have probably ten different view, you know, viewpoints on life all the way from atheism to, you know, extreme Christianity and and everything in between. And, uh, and really just sit back and listen to the discussion. Um, I would love and, that <laughs> kind of how I could facilitate that. Cause that would be a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I guess more than anything, I like your openness to the fact that you haven't made a discovery and then decided that, because you've discovered something that that must be absolutely the way it is.
2: To me, it's it's kind of an evolving understanding where right now, based on the total evidence base that I've seen, I am very much pointed in this direction of a consciousness-centric universe where consciousness is primary. And even Max Planck, the quantum physicist, when he was looking at quantum physics in the 1930s, he said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. So I am leaning in that direction very strongly based on the evidence discussed here and in my book. Uh, but I am always open to changing things. I mean, I just did a full 180. So to me, it's a matter of looking at evidence and data and coming up with a framework that can account for everything, not just the things that we want for some reason to be true, but everything.
1: And so we started out way back at the beginning of the interview. We were talking about the traditional theory of billions of whatever years ago that a big bang happened. Um, And it's not a fair question, so I apologize in advance, but um, if you were put on the spot, like I'm going to right now, (laughs) and ask you, how do you think think existence started?
2: I do get into this in the book, and the, the question itself presumes linear time. It presumes that time goes from past to present to future, and that's something in our ordinary everyday experience seems obvious. However for a number of reasons that would take a much longer discussion. I think that that notion of linear time is not actually accurate at the highest level, that time doesn't exist. So to ask what happened before something else is a construct of the human mind. And I know that's not a satisfying answer at all, but to me, that's where things actually point, which is that we are talking about something that is beyond the notion of human time and that the physical world is kind of this emergence in an ever-present now.
1: I like it. All right. The book is called An End to Upside-Down Thinking. It's written by Mark Gover. You know, I'm really encouraging everybody that's listening to read the book. Here's my take on things and, you know, my my opinion in a couple of bucks and you can buy a cup of coffee unless you're at Starbucks. And then you better have at least $5. <laughs> um, you know, I really encourage you read the information, read it with an open mind, take it in. Um, and then make some choices. Maybe after you've read the book, maybe you have opinions as well as experience that would disagree with Mark. And I think from what I've heard, Mark, that you would be okay with an open discussion on people telling you why they don't agree with you. Um, But I'm encouraging people to really have open dialogue about things like that and take in the information so that you know what you're talking about rather than just have a belief based on, well, that's what my parents told me, or, you know, whatever your belief is based on.
2: Absolutely. I think that's a a great way to end this. And also one of the reasons I decided to write, the book, which is that many of the ideas that I'm talking about are really shunned in academic communities where you can't study certain things or you need to get tenure before you can even talk about these phenomena. And I think that's holding back progress because we should be debating these things. We should be running more and more studies and providing funding to find out some of the nuances that we've discussed today and and otherwise. Um, So I'm really hoping that this book helps to stimulate conversation in the broader public.
1: And so where can people get your book and end to upside down thinking?
2: Book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and where, where books are sold. Um, also my website, which is my name, markgober.com, markgober.com. There are links to all of the book sites there.
1: Mark, thanks so much for spending some time with us today on the radio show.
2: Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: I would love to hear what you got out of this conversation with Mark. If you'll go to Twitter, go to Facebook, use hashtag Thriving Entrepreneur and let's hear your brilliant, your deeply insightful thoughts on the things that Mark has presented in his amazing book, An End Upside Down Thinking. By us using our minds in this way and expanding our thought, we have the ability to be an even better And more importantly, headed towards the best version of ourselves. And that's what we want. To me, more than anything else, that's what it means to thrive in your life and business. Is to be challenged, to learn, to grow, and to have as our goal each day, good and bad, to live as a thriving youthrive.com check us out and find out how you can be a best selling author today welcome back to thriving
0: entrepreneur this
1: is Steve welcome back Another day, another great show One that I hope Really helped you stop And think about some things I think there were some really amazing things That Mark brought up in here That I think Will challenge you To say, hey, I don't know if I believe in that And I think some of them Will have you go You know, that is Evidentiary proof Of what I've always known to be true And, you know There will be some things that you'll just be like, no, I don't believe that. And there will be some things that you will probably now incorporate into who you are, how you show up in the world, what you think, and what you do in this world. And you know what? I can't think of anything better for a person to do than to put their information out there into the world and help make the world a better place. Just as Mark went through the transition, the transformation that he's been through. And he began to share it with people and he saw that it impacted them. And so he decided to put it in a book and to make his impact on the world. You too have a story right here, right now where you are. You know, Mark was talking about in the interview, he was talking about the fact that he doesn't necessarily feel like he's reached the end of the journey and he has the absolute definitive answers to everything. But he's made a huge change and he's bringing to you the things he's learned to this point. And that's what we all need to do. You see, there are people that are 10 steps, 20 steps, 100 steps ahead of us. But there's also that person that may be 1 step, 10 steps, 20 steps behind you. Somebody that's looking for information. There's probably, you know, with as many people as there are in the world, there's probably somebody on Google or another search engine right now that are searching for something, desperate for the answer. They need it. And yet, they can't find it because that information is still held within you. And they may find something similar, they may find something that'll help them get by, or they may not. Think of the people that have come into your life and have said something, and from the moment they said that, your world was changed. You may have even had a few moments like that during the interview today, where you will never look at things exactly the same because of something somebody said. You are that to somebody else. There is somebody looking for that aha moment. Not from Oprah. Not from Lisa Nichols. Not from any of the other amazing guests that I've had on the show. And I know you've gotten ahas from them. But there's somebody that's looking for that aha moment, that piece of information, for them to be able to take down inside of themselves and make them show up better in the world because you share what you know so far. If two years, five years, 10 minutes from the time your book comes out, you learn more, you can edit the book. You can have a second edition. You can put out book number two. I referenced Josh McDowell um, in the earlier in the interview. And Josh McDowell, after putting out the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict, realized that he continued to get more information, more evidence, and that it just had to be a second book. And you may be in that place too. But the first step is you've got to share. You've got to share what you know so far. You need to share it with the world because the world needs you. I say it every week, but I want you to hear it because you need to know that you are uniquely brilliant. You were created very specifically for a purpose, on purpose, and the world needs you. Please know that Kathy and I are here. We started the bestsellers guild. We helped people to write their books. Because we want you to live as a thriving entrepreneur. You can join us in our free group, bestsellersguild.com. Like I said, it's a free group. You just show up there and, um, you know, there's all kinds of information that'll help you. And it'll help you get your message out in the world. And then when you're ready, we have programs available that can help you write, publish, and market your book to a bestseller. Over 400 people in the last two years have become bestselling authors and there are so many more that are going to become bestselling authors next. And we hope that you'll be one of them. That you'll share your message with the world. That you will take what you know so far. You'll put it out there in the world so that you can make the impact that only you can make. Don't put it off. There's like 84 days left in 2018. And if I could encourage you more than anything else, now is the time for you to write that book that you've been meaning to write, to put it out there in the world. I know that 80% of the people in the world wanna write a book and less than 5% ever do. So you've got a book inside of you you're ready for it to come out. And now you need to be inside of that percentage of people who do write that book so that you can live as a thriving entrepreneur. Until next time, have a great week.
0: Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time.
1: youthrive.com. Check us out and find out how you can be a best-selling author today.